Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Podcast with Dr. K and Lindsay, where we aim to uncover the myths of modern healthcare to help families discover cost transparency, improved access, and innovation. Dr. John Kaiser is a practicing OBGYN and the president of Salser Health. And Lindsay Heiner is a healthcare advocate and a mother of four kids. Now, let's talk healthcare. Dr. K, good to be back with you. Great to be here too. Uh, how have you been doing? Things going okay? You know, things are going good. good. It's It's been a couple of weeks. We've been busy at our house with making grape juice. That's been the thing at our house. That's so yeah. keeping, keeping the kids busy, picking grapes and putting it in balls. That's what we've been doing. Yeah, not looking forward to the leaves falling off again. We live where there's a ton of trees, so I spend my whole fall cleaning up leaves. So That's your main duty. So, yeah, that's my main job. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, today I'm really excited about our topic today because um, this topic is really, there's a great deal of secrecy around it and stereotyping and stigma. Um, and we're going to be talking about eating disorders. Yeah, I think it's really interesting topic and I think overlooked a lot. So we really appreciate you coming and talking about it a little bit. Give us an insight too. Yeah. So today we have with us, we have Kaylee Featherstone and she is a licensed professional counselor and she specializes in eating disorders. So um, thanks for being here, Kaylee. Yes, definitely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And just kind of before we start, there's been a change just this week that happened with Instagram. I don't know. Did you hear about this, Kaylee? I did. I am very excited about <laughs> it. Yeah. So so what it is, is that um, users who are 18 and under are no, they're going to be blocked from being able to see content related to promotion of weight loss um, products. And um, the spokesman for Instagram said, we want Instagram to be a positive place for everyone that uses it. And this policy is part of our ongoing work to reduce the pressure that people can sometimes feel as a result of social media. So what do you, what do you think about it? I think, I think it's so great. The National Eating Disorders Association has been working on this for quite a while. They have done a lot of, a lot of footwork here. I know a lot of social media influencers have done a lot of footwork in, in banning this and, and just getting it taken off because I don't think there's anything necessary anything that helpful that comes from that and and really i don't that if there's no pros then i think we're only seeing cons yeah yeah social social media and body image and how those are kind of correlated we'll talk more about that throughout this Mm -hmm. um, podcast but just to start it off can you tell us a little bit about yourself kaylee and and how you got to where you are in your personal journey yeah definitely so my interest as a professional counselor came really from my childhood battle with an eating disorder so as a child and a teen I suffered from anorexia nervosa and especially in Boise, Idaho, there were some really, really incredible professionals and the size of the city it was at that time, I, I really saw a huge need. And so I, I really took that, that pain that I was experiencing and was able to funnel that into something positive. And so my goal really is to be what I needed at that point in my life. And that's really like my founding principles of my business today and my, my continued dreams and my my business as a professional counselor. Oh, that's great. Um, so, so in your research and your work and your own experience, how do you think these disorders tend to start in most patients? Yeah, this this is a question I get quite often. I I come from the background of like a biopsychosocial approach, so mm-hmm. there's a there's a genetic component definitely. Um, actually, this a month or two ago, this huge huge research study just came out, um, isolating like eight different genomes. I don't understand the science behind all of it. I read the whole journal article, didn't quite understand it, um, but there's definitely a genetic proponent to it. And so yeah. um, for a mother with anorexia, her children are 
11.5 times more likely to develop an eating disorder. Yeah. So huge genetic component. And then we also have um, the psychological component as well. And that's the research I've been doing at Boise State on temperament styles. And so really, really interesting in my clients, I see people that come in with this over-control temperament. And I really, I really tell my clients that I have two different people in my office with like a hundred different lives. Um, that I have these over-controlled, very perfectionistic, very people-pleasing clients. And that's really like the feeding ground for anorexia. And then we have this social component. And that's where we're seeing like the stuff on Instagram, um, diets. We live in a culture that's very diet oriented, a culture that's really founded upon hating ourselves. Yeah. Um, I had a client once tell, once tell me that it's really impossible to recover in a world that has an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So it's really prevalent everywhere. Yeah. And I think the familial part to it in the genetics mm-hmm. is a really interesting field. I mean, just from a practitioner standpoint, mm-hmm. you do see if you have a patient with that one of those problems yeah. and you talk to them about their family history, it comes up quite often. Definitely. So, Definitely. so it's very interesting. And, a, and a, I think a good area of research for the future too to try and help understand it more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So an eating disorder can, the genesis can be oftentimes as well, um, a reaction to emotional stress as well, mm-hmm. in addition to this um, biological component. Yeah, definitely. So I, I've heard before that the genetics are like the, the weapon and our psychology kind of loads the gun and it's our environment that pulls the trigger. And so if we have that environmental stress that environmental trigger that's usually the the onset of the eating disorder how about for you personally what was what was the genesis for you i i think i had a lot going on at that time but especially as a young athlete i i excelled in cross country and track really really early on and i was very disappointed in myself i'd gone to this national track meet and i i got 10th place and i'd never gotten 10th place before Mm -hmm. And after that, I, I came home and I just started training and training and training. And I was 11 at the time. And oh, wow. so an 11 year old too, I mean, I was treating it like a college sport and then I got sick and that was really the trigger. I got a, like a sinus infection and I didn't feel like eating. And then just from there, it really, like, I can see how those genes just really turned on and I felt good. I felt better not eating. And I felt like it was a way for me to gain even more of an edge by losing weight. And those were the things I was hearing societally, that if you're thinner, if you're lighter, you can run faster, you can do more, you're better, you're more successful. So that was like the main, I would say the main trigger, the onset of my eating disorder. So for you, it was, you felt like it would give you an advantage in sports? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And did it end up like impacting you in a negative way? <laughs> in a very negative way. Yes, definitely. I mean, I was in the hospital two months after that and didn't really return home for several years. So my... I, I definitely think my athletic career was changed for the rest of my life at that time. So, um, and then still today, I continue to battle different injuries that are a result of my eating disorder and malnutrition at a young age. Yeah. It's, it's hard for, I think anyone listening that hasn't been through this to really understand that mm-hmm. when you were in that position, um, when you were, when your eating disorder was starting, were people telling you, um, you know, this isn't good for you. Um, and when you got, you know, you got to the point where you're hospitalized, did, was there any way to kind of talk you out of it or, or how, how help us understand maybe just yeah. the mindset? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's, it's difficult to understand if you haven't had an eating disorder because food is such a, I mean, everyone has to have food. Everyone has to drink water. Everyone has movement in their life, no matter what's going on. So 
to understand that level of obsession and fear surrounding food is it's I, I think it's unfathomable. Um, but for me, that was really I, at that time, I was actually praised for losing weight, even at such a young age. I mean, I'd always grown up um, in a in a smaller body. And I remember being on the bus going to a tennis meet and, or a tennis match. And one of my friends told me that I had no fat on my stomach. And I was like, awesome. Cool. This is great. This is great. People are praising me for this. And people had had praised my work ethic that I I could exercise as much as I was doing and that I was doing so much at such a young age. And and I had coaches that were saying things and commenting, really praising me for what I was doing. And so I didn't really understand that what I was doing was was bad. And in fact, I had I for me it was nothing about vanity. And I would say for no eating disorder is it about vanity. Um, it's usually about something much, much deeper. But by the point that I had really gotten sick and the medical complications started to happen, there was no, there was no way stopping. There was no understanding. I was so, so malnourished and my cognitive functioning had been so, had declined so significantly that, that I was just in straight survival mode and I had no ability to reason. The personality types and the temperament that go along with some eating disorders, mm -hmm. do you see them? as as the as you understand the problem and as things change mm -hmm. do those also change also or are they on a different level you know what i mean yeah that's that's actually the research that i have been doing more recently and i i just gave a talk on this a few months ago that i really that temperament so our temperament is a fixed set of traits yeah. so our personality we can we can slightly change a few things and that's the therapy that i do is about regulating and and yet that personality trait or that temperament is is a fixed set and so I, I actually, as a teen in treatment, I started to meet all these professionals that were so inspiring and so amazing. And, and most of them had recovered from an eating disorder. Uh, and that gave me so much hope that, yeah, yeah. that instead of being really, really good at having anorexia, I could be really good at something else. And so that has been a huge thing for me personally, but also in my work with, with clients and patients today is if you can be this good at having an eating disorder, why not use something more effective? There are so many more options out there than, than yeah. this eating disorder. And right. if we can learn how to use your skills in a different way, then awesome. Fantastic. That's a great, that's a great idea. Great approach. Yeah. Right. Different kind of th thinking to it, which I think yeah. is really good rather mm -hmm. than just saying it's wrong. You know yeah. what I mean? I, mean, oh, I don't totally. think that helps. I think yeah. giving a pathway forward and, and how to utilize some of the other aspects mm -hmm. in your personality are, are really helpful. That's totally. great. Yeah. Thank and you. it's, it's not going away. And I think that, yeah. that I can see that difference in myself now though, is I, I didn't type out my notes or anything today. I came kind of cruising in and, and I've had to learn that that has been a very conscious yeah. effort in my life because I, I know I can't get too over controlled. I can't control things too much in my life. I right. struggle. Yeah. yeah. So what are some of the uh, warning signs, symptoms that, that parents and, and other in yeah. the community should identify as maybe there's an issue or when they're trying to help? Definitely. I, I get this question quite often because they're around 80%, I think 80% of 10 year olds are afraid of being fat mm -hmm. and 95% wow. of women at some point, um, engage in disordered eating habits. So unfortunately that is the norm, but it's when we take that a step further, I think that any type of disordered eating is, wow. is concerning and that's something that we should discuss. And yet when someone is obsessing quite I guess I would say impairment. Impairment would be the number mm -hmm. one issue when somebody, when their life is impaired because this is such an obsession or it's such a concern. And then the mindset. 
is huge, especially with athletes. If I have an athlete that is exercising because they they want to do well in their game, I think, okay, like, uh, all right, we'll we'll see how this goes. But if somebody is exercising because they have to right. perform well in their game or else, then that's the concern. So really getting that relationship and building that relationship with people. And I think that's really important. Yeah, that to me, I'm feeling very emotional right now because I have two girls, right? I have two mm-hmm. young girls. And so to hear you say something like 80% of 10 year olds, is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. Are concerned about their weight. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. heartbreaking to me yeah. Um, yeah. because they should be allowed to be kids and they shouldn't be worried mm-hmm. about these things. And so um, what can we do as a society to to change that? Yes. <laughs> Great question. It's such a multifaceted issue. And yet I, I think that this diet culture that we've been raised in is pervasive and it's almost it's it's almost our like knee jerk reaction to anything that even it's it's so ingrained in what we're doing in in healthcare systems in in schools. Um, somebody I've, I've had several clients go to a doctor and they're experiencing panic attacks and the doctor says, oh, you need to lose weight um, so that that quick fix um, rather than looking at the whole person, but also just checking in on ourselves too. Like, what are we saying to other people? How are we, how are we viewing ourselves and how is that coming off to other people? I I would say most of my clients will tell me that the first time they recognized their body dissatisfaction or their body in general was hearing a parent or somebody they really cared about um, commenting on their own body. So they'll usually say, you know, my mom was always dieting and she would stand in front of the mirror and and tell me how fat she was, or I'd see that. And that's when I started to take that inward. So it's important for parents to recognize that their comments about their own personal body image could have an effect on on their children. Totally. Yeah. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself first. Um, Deal with your stuff first. See where that's coming from. Work on that. And and that has such a huge ripple effect. so how do you help your clients work towards uh, feeling more confident about their body if they do have body image um, mm-hmm. things that they're dealing with? First and foremost, education. I start talking about the diet industry. We have a $68 billion diet industry in the United States. Um, in comparison, that's more than the Volvo car industry worldwide. So we have a huge, huge diet industry and, and really calling out the diet culture BS and the stuff that they're being just inundated by daily. That if they're comparing themselves to the norm, the norm isn't healthy. And then focusing on things about themselves that are really, that are much more powerful than the body. The body's great and wonderful and it's our vessel. It's our home. And yet it's a lot harder to be kind than it is to lose weight. Um, Losing weight is easy. Anyone can do that. Uh, Well, I don't want to say anyone can do that, but losing weight is, there are so many solutions. There's $68 billion industry teaching us how to lose weight, but being kind is a lot harder. And so focusing on things about themselves that they can, that they can change and things about themselves that they already have, that they inherently have as a human being, um, that they're worth just waking up in the morning is incredible. It's amazing. Yeah. And I think that whole, um, idea of dieting, uh, diet short, you know, just ways to do it quickly and not establish what is really the goal, which is a healthy Mm -hmm. life. Uh, it has been the total focus for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's going to take us a long, long time to get past that. Hopefully we'll be able to. 
Uh, and I think the social media plays a significant role mm -hmm. in how we try and approach that. And uh, as a physician, it's a difficult kind of problem to kind of get to because it isn't, we all like a, a quick fix. Oh, here, I'm going to give you this. This is going to take care of that. And this problem is not that way. This problem is a long understanding of what's motivating you, what the what the ways are to overcome those things mm -hmm. and an alternative to replace it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, definitely. And there's so, it's such a, a multidimensional issue that, yeah. I mean, I under, I empathize with doctors. I, I think I empathize with the entire system that it's an entire system change yeah. and not just one quick fix on this end as well. I think that we all really have to take inventory of ourselves and, and look at what we really value as ourselves and as a community, as a society. and and work to change those things, but I don't have a quick fix yeah, for that either. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what does treatment look like if somebody is suffering from an eating disorder? Is there going to be a quick fix? Are they going to be able to be talked out of that irrational behavior? Or how does it generally unfold to, to be able to be treated and to, and to successfully work past that issue? Yes, we have a very instant gratification society that if I want something on Amazon, I click it on my phone and I get it in two hours. Whereas treatment from an eating disorder on average is 18 months to three years and recovery okay. is about three to seven years. So this is a long process. So when I, when I take on a new client, I usually say like, buckle up. I hope you like me. This is going to be, it's going to be a long ride together, but it's, it's a long process. And um, this is something that has been ingrained in them and it's part of their personality as well. So we don't want to completely change their personality. However, we want to be able to alter aspects of their personality to serve them rather than to destroy themselves and then learning skills and really rewiring their brain. That takes a long time. But I would say a good, a good percentage of my clients have to go to residential or inpatient treatment, which is outside of the state. We don't have anything in Idaho right now. So there I'm sending 13, 14 year olds to Seattle, Washington or Los Angeles. And that's tough. That's tough. This is a long, it's a long process and it's, it's pretty heartbreaking. What is the usual, uh, in that type of facility, how long do they typically stay in those? I'm sure it's variable but based on the patient. But yeah, about three to four months on average. It's not like this 20-day yeah, right, twenty right, day right, fix right, type right. of thing. Um, and, and that's actually changed more recently. When I was in treatment, it was more like six to 12 months. Yeah. Well, so I, I would imagine actually an ideal amount of time would probably be around six months. Yeah. And then what's the relapse rate? What, what do you think? Relapse rate is around 35 to 40%. So it's pretty high. Yeah. So that extended period, you say it's seven years for recovery. Is that what? Around. Yeah. yeah. I mean, three to seven years. So is that where they, do they continue to check in with counseling and just kind of take a gauge of where they're at and keep moving in the mm -hmm. right directions? Is that what that, that longer time frame is? Yeah. Yeah. That can look different for everyone. I would say for somebody with say severe anorexia, yeah. most likely there will be a hospitalization and then a residential treatment stay. And then they might drop down to like day treatment, then intensive outpatient treatment, and then to outpatient, which is what I do. And then I work with a team. So a dietitian, a medical doctor, maybe a PT or an OT. Um, so we have an entire team yeah. for this client. And then um, we'll, we'll drop down from twice a week to once a week, but every other week. So that might be a two, three year process of, okay. of that entire thing. And then that extra, let's say three to seven years is, is checking in with therapy if they need it and, and just continuing to hone in on their skills. And how do people find resources here, um, in the treasure Valley, if they are dealing with needing disorder? 
Um, or where should they go? What tips do you have? Or if you, or if people suspect a family member is suffering, what should they do? What steps should they take? Yeah, I would reach out to a professional. Uh, most of my clients will find me on Google yeah. or, or go to their medical doctor and medical doctors do a great job at being that gatekeeper school counselors. Also, um, they, those, those people that get a lot of, like they touch a lot of bases there can, can be those huge referral sources. And so acknowledging, recognizing and identifying eating disorders is important, very, very important. And so there's this thing called like the scoff questionnaire. It has like five, five questions in that a medical doctor can ask in a physical. And if somebody scores over a three or higher, then they send them into therapy. So I think just knowing that and having that good connected treatment team in the Valley. And I think there's other resources that are starting to be incorporated into primary care offices, mm -hmm. licensed clinical social workers, where they take okay. the time to try to figure out what are all the other issues that may be contributing to some of the problems that a mm -hmm. patient is having? And they can uncover some of those and then refer them to appropriate resources. Mm -hmm. So awesome. I think that's a great resource to have if we can spread it across many more primary care providers. Yeah, yeah that's really great. Yeah. We didn't talk yeah, about what, what are the major, so we, we didn't say what are the major types of eating disorders mm -hmm. that, yeah. that, that we should be aware of and that everyone should be kind of looking for? Yes, definitely. So. Um, with the, the DSM in 2013, we added binge eating disorder, and that's actually the most prevalent eating yeah. disorder. So around 3% is uh, of people experience binge eating disorder. So that's um, like feeling out of control eating, experiencing um, episodes of binging, and this like out of control feeling and eating a significantly more amount than what most people would eat in that setting. Right. So Binge is, is a word that really gets thrown around a lot. Like I, I binged and ate a cupcake or I binge watched yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Stranger Things or, or whatever. <laughs> like, yes, that, that's, that's a word that definitely gets thrown around a lot. Binging is actually very, very distressing. Huh. And so part of that, there has to be impairment and distress. And so again, with eating disorders, we're really looking at impairment in life. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm going to take a little bit of a sidebar, but people with eating disorders, especially anorexia nervosa, um, experience significant impairment, um, impairment similar to autism or um, schizophrenia. So these are very high functioning, typically individuals that are really, really impaired. This is completely controlling their life. And so for somebody in that severe range, they're going to be really, really, really struggling. They might not, it might not show in their academics or in their athletics or whatever they're doing. And yet they're really, really distressed. And so that distress is the number one thing that I'm looking for. And the number one thing that I'm telling parents too is, is acknowledging where that distress is. Um, but aside from that, we also have bulimia nervosa and that's periods of, of binge eating followed by um, compensatory behavior. So um, self-induced vomiting, exercise, laxative, diuretics, something to that extent. And then we also have anorexia nervosa, which is periods of restriction. And so with anorexia, there's not binging. That's so rarely, occasionally there can be binging and purging. So there's purge type anorexia and then there's restricting type anorexia. Um, but the binge, but they're primarily restricting, I would say. And then there's also ARFID, which is avoidant restricted food intake disorder. And this is usually seen in younger kids, um, but really this intense fear of certain foods. And so Typically, in several food groups will be taken out of their diet, but there's no body image disturbance. So it's there's nothing to do with body image; it's more of that fear of food. So it can look similar to anorexia, and a lot of these diagnoses can start to overlap and, and get kind of confusing. Um, and then we also have unspecified and other specified, and 
um, pica and rumination disorder, which are incredibly rare. So yeah, pica yeah. is uh, in pregnancy. Yes, uh, yeah. They uh, crave unusual things. Mm -hmm. Some food items, some not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that happened to me during my pregnancy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. K, so let's talk. If you have any insight on some of the health ramifications from a medical standpoint yeah, with I mean, eating disorders. Yeah, anorexia nervosa has probably got the most severe kind of medical uh, complications potential, depending on the length of the uh, disorder. And they usually have problems with uh, mental, uh, with being able to concentrate, be able to function normally. Um, symptoms of uh, abdominal discomfort, constipation is a very common problem for them. Uh, if left go long enough, they can suffer from end organ disease and organ failure, cardiac disease, renal or kidney disease, um, GI problems. Uh, they really can spiral into a pretty significant problem. Patients who become pregnant, uh, there is a, another set of issues that go along with that just because of the lack of nutrition and what that can, how that can affect the pregnancy and can have significant complications associated with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and eating disorders are the most fatal mental illness. Um, as of late, opioid use disorder actually has um, become number one. Taken over, yeah. Take it, taken over. Um, I don't know. That's good. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't. I'm not sure there. Um, and yeah, every 62 minutes, someone dies as a direct result of an eating disorder. Hmm. So very, very fatal, very concerning. Yeah, it's. Um, it just it just feels like things need to change. Mm -hmm. And how how that is? Do, do you think it has to do with stigma that surrounds eating disorders and people not wanting to talk about it? Do you think people may be in denial if they do have an eating disorder? I mean, how do we bring it into the light? Would you say? Yeah, I, I was just working on this for a presentation I'm doing in a few months, but there are so many myths out there about eating disorders, and it's such a stigmatized topic. And even this summer, I was at Albertsons, and there was a a magazine that said like, so-and-so has lost this much weight, anorexic again. And I, my thought was, you really can't win. Like yeah. if, if you, if you don't, if you don't lose weight, then you're bad. Like losing weight is a good thing, but if you lose too much, then, then it's this really bad thing. And I have an eating disorder and that's horrible. Um, I think we need to take away the stigma surrounding that. And that really begins with education and education, um, educating ourselves, edu educating ourselves on our own biases and, and doing so in schools too. That's, Great. Yeah, I was going to say, so probably school is a significant place where mm -hmm. there should be a, a, an awareness. Is that increasing? Is that awareness increasing? I have, I have noticed that, yes. And I, I've had a lot of school counselors that have yeah. come into my office and sat down with me, asked me questions, yeah. talked to me. I've done a few trainings with the school district. So that's exciting. It's exciting. There's, there's more that's going on there. Um, a recent statistic, actually about funding so for each individual with anorexia or with an eating disorder there's about 73 cents of research dollars so not even three quarters there um, and then for autism which this is something with a um, same amount of impairment similar amount of impairment there's about 59 dollars per effective indi affected individual and with schizophrenia it's about 86 dollars per affected individual yeah. and so that the research the the bodies that we have that are spreading the word about this are very minimal. Mm -hmm. So, and I would imagine a lot of that is due to stigma, due to lack of awareness. Um, also in men, I mean, a third of eating disorders are in men and probably 2% of my client base is, is male. Mm -hmm. So I know there's a huge disparity there in, 
in attitudes towards help seeking, um, stigma surrounding men with eating disorders, and um, kind of that masculine mystique as well. So breaking down several barriers, but again, multidimensional issue. Um, not one quick fix, but several options for change. I appreciate all the work you're doing and you coming in and talking with us today. Is there some, um, do you hear questions from, from girls when you go to schools and, or, or boys, um, young, young people, when you go into schools, are there any questions that surprise you that come from kids, um, that really stick out to you or that you just feel like parents need to know about? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I have had several kids kind of heartbreaking questions that have asked me if they think that they should be on a diet and because their parents are putting them on a diet. Um, those are usually, those are the, the heartbreaking questions for me. Um, that I, I would say for first and foremost is parents just understanding the depth of, of this disease also without an eating disorder. So if we take out the percentage of people with an eating disorder, um, most most girls, by the time they've reached junior high, have been on a diet. And so if we're not even looking at eating disorders, we're just looking at body dissatisfaction, um, anxiety, stress, depression, other concerning issues. Their weight is probably a much, le much less of an issue than their mental health. And in fact, people are much more likely to experience a mental illness than they are to experience any type of physical implication of their weight. Much, much, much more likely. So when we're looking at, at issues, I, I, I'm not a parent yet, so I imagine, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to be a parent, but if we're looking at all these issues that our children could be facing, I would definitely put weight far, far down on the spectrum and put their mental health and their well-being at the forefront of that. Because if they are, if they're feeling good, then they're going to take care of other aspects of themselves. That will all fall in line. But, but telling them that they're not okay is going to have multiple, multiple effects on on not just their physical health, but also their mental health. And, and mental health is a huge, huge issue. I mean, I also specialize in suicide and suicide prevention. And that's a, that's a different podcast for a different day. But I, I mean, this is, this is a big issue and, and we need to, we need to take care of our youth. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think that's probably the most, uh, you know, important part for parents to understand is the mm -hmm. things they say <clears throat> will have lasting implications on that that child's personality mm -hmm. and what, how they cope with things in the future. I think everyone should always keep that in mind. Things you say do make a huge difference, especially yeah. to a child. Yeah. And, and for, for the good, last night I had a beautiful session yep. with someone that um, really had talked about how his dad had made such an impact on him, him staying alive. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and parents wow. have such, such an impact for good as well. And, and I mean, parents are, are wonderful. And so yeah. really kind of what side of the, of the coin do we want to be on here? Yeah. Um, I love that though. Just the focus on big picture with, with young kids, we focus on their potential and we focus mm -hmm. on um, where they can put their energy and not put so much emphasis on, on body image Yeah, and this perfect ideal that probably isn't ever really attainable. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. uh, well, we really thank you for coming and sharing yes. with us. That's great. And we may take you up on the suicide podcast. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Thank you for thank having you me. Much. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Healthcare Podcast with Dr. K and Lindsay. Join us again for our next episode as we work toward increasing understanding and transparency in healthcare. care.